0: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your borough purchase at borough.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash ACAST.
1: When Mr. Jefferson went to France, Patsy was a young woman grown. My mother was about her age and Polly was just budding into womanhood. Their stay was about 18 months. But during that time, my mother became Mr. Jefferson's concubine, and when he was called back home, she was enceinte by him. He desired to bring my mother back to Virginia with him, but she demurred in France. She was free, while if she returned to Virginia, she would be reenslaved, so she refused to return with him to induce her to do so. He promised her extraordinary privileges and made a solemn pledge that her children should be freed at the age of twenty-one years. In consequence of his promises, on which she implicitly relied, she returned with him to Virginia. Madison Hemmings in an interview with a radical Republican newspaper editor, 1873. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 5.15, Sally Hemmings, Sally's Choice. Last time, we introduced Sally Hemmings, an enslaved girl from Virginia, and her early life at Monticello, a mansion and estate owned by Thomas Jefferson. She survived the tumult of the American Revolutionary War, but was separated from her family at the age of 10 when she was ordered to a neighbouring household to be the maid to Jefferson's younger daughter, Polly, who, thanks to the tangled web of the Wales-Jefferson-Hemmings family tree, was also her niece. After a series of tragedies, the now 14-year-old Sally would chaperone the unwilling and unruly Polly across the Atlantic to be reunited with her widowed father, who is now the US ambassador to France. Today, we will see how the sexual relationship between Jefferson and Hemings came about, and how the onset of the French Revolution changed Sally's life forever. But before we get going again, I'd like to thank my amazing Patreon supporters that keep the show going. If you too would like to support the show, head on over to patreon.com forward slash The Other Half Podcast, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find additional content such as maps and portraits. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Sally Hemming's world had always been extremely small. Before getting on the ship to the old world, she had only ever lived on Virginian farms these were not years of domestic tranquility. She was enslaved, albeit one with a few more privileges than most of the other enslaved workers in the household, and lived with realities of war and revolution all around her. Very little could have prepared her for Paris, a city unrecognisable from what it would later become, but still one of the world's great capital cities. The bustle, the noise, the smells the people. It all must have been incredibly overwhelming. She was taken, along with Polly, to the Hôtel de Lange, the home that Jefferson had rented on the western edge of the Sainte-Élysée. If you want to see it today, well, I'm afraid you'll be disappointed as it was pulled down during the 19th century. When she arrived at the residence, she was reunited with her older brother, James, who had just finished his cookery apprenticeship. He had travelled extensively around Europe already and spoke fluent French. Indeed, he was about to take up the role of household chef, which would come with a decent wage. He was still enslaved, but this was a degree of freedom rare for an enslaved person back then. Although this was the home of the American ambassador, it was a French-speaking household. Sally would have to get up to speed quickly. The presence of her brother must have been a great help and comfort for Sally, who must have felt like a fish out of water. Not helped by the fact that Polly, after a very brief reunion with her father, was pretty much immediately sent off to the same Catholic boarding school as her sister Patsy. Perhaps surprisingly, it seems that Sally did not go with her. Instead, she would stay at the American ambassador's residence, with seemingly no fixed role. The reason why she didn't go was the somewhat nebulous legal position of an enslaved person in France at this time. Officially, there were no enslaved people in France. Under contemporary French law, there was something called the Freedom Principle, which held that an enslaved person who set foot on French soil was immediately set free. That seems like a hard and fast rule, no complications there but it won't surprise you to hear that there were nuances. For starters, this did not apply to France's colonial possessions, including in North America and the Caribbean. This law was further tested when French enslavers in the colonies returned home with their enslaved servants. The courts were at odds over how to deal with the issue, resulting in a giant legal muddle. Broadly speaking, anyone bringing over one of their enslaved people back to France had to show that they were being given training in some sort of profession or religious instruction. This provided a legal loophole inside which thousands of enslaved men, women and children found themselves in this supposedly slavery-free kingdom. In 1777, in an attempt to deal with this thorny issue, King Louis XVI issued a decree called the Police des Noirs, which officially banned any black or mixed-race person from entering France. Now, that's either free or enslaved. Noncompliance with the ordinance was punished with a fine and a ban from holding any enslaved person in France. Although he was a foreign ambassador, Thomas Jefferson was not immune from this law. Officially speaking, Sally Hemings should have been turned away at the border and sent back to Virginia, as should have her brother but Jefferson was not unusual in flouting this law. Ship captains and custom officials routinely turned a blind eye to enslaved people entering France, and other enforcement officials could be bought off or otherwise induced to look the other way. Jefferson then likely kept Sally in his household to avoid his daughters having to answer embarrassing and potentially incriminating questions about their young maid. The first thing he ordered Sally to do was get inoculated for smallpox. There had not been time to do this before the trip, so it had to be done in France. A proper vaccine for the disease would not come for another decade or so, but it was still possible to gain immunity from it by essentially infecting a healthy patient with a small amount of the disease. This was still an experimental procedure, and in numerous cases it either failed to give protection to the patient or they died of the very smallpox from which they were supposedly being protected. For Jefferson, though, the safety of his household came first. He did not want smallpox in it, and so he sent Sally to the care of Dr. Robert Sutton, an English doctor whose father had pioneered a new inoculation technique that had made the procedure far safer. It still, though, required infecting Sally with smallpox meaning that she had to be isolated in a special clinic on the city's outskirts. In her book, The Hemmings of Monticello, Annette Gordon-Reed goes into great detail about the procedure and what Sally must have experienced, which we sadly don't have time for. But to sum it up, it sucked. The care she experienced there was world-class for the time, but it still would have been deeply unpleasant. It must have been terrifying being taken to a place she did not know, surrounded by people speaking a language she did not speak, and deliberately given a deadly disease that had killed countless millions of people. And all of this not with her consent. After all that was dealt with, Sally would have settled into her new role in Jefferson's household. When the girls came home for the weekend, she would have continued as their maid, and for the rest of the time she would have been a chambermaid for Thomas Jefferson. She was given new clothes and a wage, meaning that she would have had the opportunity to go out and explore Paris, a place incomparable to anything she had before experienced. If she had gone out, it would have likely been with her brother, who would have been able to show her the sights and offer her some protection. While we don't know much about what Sally thought of Paris, we do know what Jefferson thought. He was impressed and appalled by French society in equal measure. He enjoyed cultural pursuits such as the theatre and opera, but was shocked by the behaviour of French women. In particular, he was disgusted by the sight of women doing what he deemed to be men's work. In his work Notes on a Tour Through Southern France and Italy, he wrote, I observe women and children carrying heavy burdens and labouring with the hoe. This is an unequivocal indication of extreme poverty. Men in a civilised society never expose their wives or children to labour above their force or sex, as long as their own labour can protect them from it. The hypocrisy of this, the fact that he forced his own enslaved women and children to labour on his plantations, seems to have been lost on him. While his predecessor as ambassador, Benjamin Franklin, had a notorious reputation as a womaniser, Jefferson was considered rather priggish. He enjoyed the company of women, but thought they should know their place. He especially flounced at the very notion of them having political opinions. He felt that well-born ladies should be protected from such notions. His grief over the loss of his wife lasted for many years, but he was now finally emerging on the other side and looking for some female companionship. He first found it in the English artist Maria Cosway. She had grown up in Italy and had been something of a prodigy in art and music. Age 19, she'd married Richard Cosway, a man whose looks were compared to, quote, a preposterous little Dresden China mannequin with a face like a monkey. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given that description, it was not a happy marriage, with her husband struggling to exert control over his exotic wife, while carrying on a litany of affairs with partners of both genders. Maria and Jefferson met while the castaways were on a trip to Paris and the two quickly became smitten with each other. They would spend every day together, captivated by each other's company. Historians have differed on whether they had a sexual relationship, personally I think it's very likely, but they did remain intimately close for the rest of their lives. The start of Jefferson's sexual interest in Sally Hemings is similarly unclear. It was something that was, by its very nature, kept private and not spoken or written about publicly. Jefferson would hardly be the first enslaver to so be attracted to the idea of sleeping with one of his enslaved women. She was a young, attractive woman, thirty years his junior, forced to be at his beck and call. He lived and worked at his residence, where Sally worked. She was always around. By all accounts, he was lonely. He had promised his late wife he would not remarry, and he meant to keep his word. How it all started, how he made his advance on her, how she reacted. Sadly, these and all other aspects of their relationship in France are unknown. All we have is speculation. It's worth remembering that Sally was his wife's half-sister. Therefore, they may have resembled each other in looks, mannerisms, and character. She had also grown up around his daughters, and may have picked up things from them that Jefferson enjoyed. She was also mixed race, with a lighter skin tone than many of Jefferson's other enslaved workers. In the racist world in which Jefferson inhabited and acted, these things mattered. It goes without saying that his behaviour was predatory. As an enslaved woman in his household, there was no way that Sally could freely reject his advances. Her age and status meant that Jefferson's views on male and social intellectual dominance over women would be reinforced. He thought all women should be domestic, compliant, and obedient. They should know their place and station. In his words, they should be like, quote, angels, unlike European women, whom he described as Amazons. I don't really want to speculate about what Sally's feelings towards Jefferson would have been. This is partly because they are entirely unknowable, but also because they would have been so tainted by the inbuilt power dynamics at play. Having said all of this, Jefferson does seem to have deeply cared about Sally and wanted to create a long-term bond between them. It seems likely that Sally, at the very least, played along with him. Some have suggested a sort of Freudian dynamic, where their relationship was more akin to father and daughter, albeit a sexual one others imbue Sally with a Machiavellian spirit, using Jefferson's attraction to her advantage and using it as her way out of her miserable condition. This is undoubtedly to 21st century eyes the most enticing argument. It's equally possible that she went along with it because she had no alternative and something she had internalised as normal. Her mother and grandmother had both been forced into relationships with their enslavers. It is likely that many other women she knew had as well. They may not have wanted it, they certainly cannot have fully consented, but it was the way the world worked back then. However it started, however she felt about it, we do know that Sally became pregnant at around the start of 1789. Now this was particularly poor timing, as Jefferson was extremely keen to leave France and return to the United States there were a couple of reasons for this. His eldest daughter was now 16, and he wanted to find a suitable American for her to marry. Hard to do that while they were living in Paris. He was also receiving a stream of letters from home, warning that things were not all well at Monticello. The harvest had been extremely poor, and his debts were mounting alarmingly. Not to mention, of course, you may have recognised the date there, Paris was a radical, ticking time bomb that was on the verge of exploding into full-blown revolution. He wanted to leave. Sally did not. The moment she had stepped on French soil, she was a free woman in the eyes of the law. As soon as she stepped back on an American ship, she would be re-enslaved. She may not have been out of bondage while in the Jefferson residence, but he had no legal means to force her to go with him. If she and her brother stood their ground, if they fled, then Jefferson would have no recourse. For the first time in her life, Sally had some limited power over her enslaver, and she was determined to use it. She was, though, in something of a quandary. She spoke a little French by now, but it was still a foreign land to her. Not an easy place for someone who looked and sounded like her to live. If she stayed... She would never see her family again, except perhaps her brother if he also stayed. She may also have sensed the impending upheavals that would lead to bastille storming, tennis court oathing, and guillotine decapitating. Patsy Jefferson wrote at this time of seeing in the streets sixty thousand citizens flourishing swords, scythes, and pruning hooks. Sally had already lived through one bloody revolution. She likely did not want to repeat the experience. And even without that, the prospects for a poor, unmarried, mixed race single mother alone in Paris would hardly have been good, even in more stable times. She had plenty of experience and may have been able to find work, but it would have been a real challenge, especially with a language barrier. But equally, she did not want to return to the same conditions she had left. She and her family had enjoyed some privileges that other enslaved people at Monticello did not, but they were still very much enslaved. If she was to return with Jefferson, there would have to be some changes. He was unwilling, but she stood her ground and forced some concessions. She would return to the United States and be reenslaved. enslaved Their child and any future children they had would also be enslaved. But when they reached the age of 21, they would be freed. Thus, Sally would fulfil that very first duty of parenthood, ensure that her children had it better than she had. It wasn't much of a deal, a sign of her weak bargaining position, but it was something. Jefferson refused to free Sally, to do so would only cause gossip. It would suggest the inconvenient and embarrassing truth. But their children would, eventually, become free men and women. Well, that was the theory at any rate. Because, of course, Sally only had Jefferson's word to go on. There was no legal contract, no way of forcing him to keep to his word. She was entrusting her life and her children's future liberty to the promises of her enslaver. It was one hell of a gamble. On the 26th of September, 1789... Just over two months after the Bastille was stormed, Sally, her brother James and the three Jeffersons left Paris. They took the same route as Sally had taken the first time, travelling to La Havre before crossing to London and then boarding an American ship across the Atlantic called the Clermont. The journey was uneventful until they got within a few miles of Virginia. The coast was shrouded in such a thick fog that they could not find the harbour pilot boat sent to guide them in. After three days of hanging around, the captain grew impatient and tried to run the ship in himself unescorted. This was a terrible idea. It nearly ran aground and almost collided with another vessel, before finally catching fire once they arrived in Norfolk. This was hardly an auspicious way for Sally to return to her homeland where she was once again clapped in bondage and enslaved. If she had hoped to return to France one day and be legally free, then they were dashed when they heard the news that the newly elected President George Washington had nominated Jefferson as his Secretary of State. Clearly, his political future lay now in the United States and not Europe. They arrived back in Monticello just before Christmas, and it was a rapturous reception. The enslaved workers greeted Jefferson like a hero, hoping that his return may lead to a more prosperous future for an estate that had been greatly mismarriaged in his absence. Sally and James, too, must have cut quite a dash. Their clothes would have been decidedly less chic than the Jeffersons, but their Parisian-bought threads would have been a damn sight fancier than the shabby uniforms worn by the rest of their family. What stories they would have been able to tell of their time in Europe, Experiences that enslaved workers, many of whom may never have left the plantation, could scarcely have dreamt of. They must have been like many celebrities in their community, for days, weeks and even years to come. Sally had much news to catch up on. Many of her brothers and sisters had had children since she left. But equally, not much had changed. Their situation and legal status were the same. One wonders what her mother, Betty Hemmings, thought when she found out that her daughter, like she had and her mother before her, had become pregnant with the child of their enslaver. By now, Sally would have been very obviously with child. And while the subject of who the father was would have been kept very hush-hush, I find it hard to believe that everyone didn't know the truth. Sadly, though she safely gave birth to the child, the baby only lived for a very short time. If it was ever given a name, history has not recorded it. As I said before, the principal reason Jefferson left France was to secure good marriages for his daughters – and he moved quickly with his eldest. Now, throughout this story, I've been calling his daughters Patsy and Polly, as those were their childhood names that everyone used. Well, now they were adults in the eyes of the law, and so reverted to their birth names, which were Martha and Mary, though the latter was also sometimes called Berea. You have my apologies for this confusion. Blame the Jeffersons. Martha, formerly Patsy, married Thomas Randolph, a planter at Monticello and the son of one of Jefferson's oldest friends. Sorry to say that he was not a pleasant man, but this isn't their story so I won't be going into it. What matters to us is the dowry. In the agreement drawn up, Thomas Jefferson agreed to give 27 enslaved people to his daughter and Randolph to set themselves up in their new estate. Now, normally, one would have expected Sally to have been among them. She had been a lady's maid to Martha while they were in Paris, and Martha expected her to continue in this role. Starting up a new household was hard enough without having to break in a new maid. But Sally would remain a Monticello. The letters Martha sent back to her father complained about his decision, but are coy about the reasons for it. She knew, as well as her father did, why he wanted to keep Sally in his household. Naturally, of course, Sally had no say in this. The same happened a little while later when his second daughter, Mary, formerly Polly, went to boarding school in Philadelphia. Sally had been a maid to Mary since they were small girls and had been through a lot together. Once again, though, Sally was not sent with Mary. One of her sisters was dispatched instead. As it turned out, though, Martha would not be away for long. As for complex legal reasons, the home that her father wants to secure for her fell through. Instead, she and her husband would run Monticello while her husband was in Philadelphia, currently the nation's capital, for his government job. Now, Sally's whereabouts were, uh, well, let's just say a little uncertain for a good deal of the rest of her life. Because her relationship with her enslaver was kept a secret, recording as little detail as possible was in everyone's best interest. Well, I say everyone, really just Jefferson. There's been a lot of speculation that one of the reasons why Martha had wanted to get married so quickly after arriving back in America was to escape the shame of her father's interracial liaison with one of his enslaved. Though that is based on shaky evidence at best. But so far as we can tell, Sally was more or less tied to Monticello. She doesn't seem to have followed Jefferson to Philadelphia, and she certainly did not go with his daughters when they set up their own households. Whether by her agreement or not, her fate was tightly bound up with Jefferson's needs. He, though, was rarely in Monticello over the next three years or so while he was Secretary of State. Annette Gordon-Reed estimates he spent less than four months cumulatively there over that time, which meant that Sally would rarely have seen him, though it's likely that when he was there, she would have been very much engaged with him. It's telling that, over this time unlike her siblings, she never married, nor seemingly engaged in any serious relationship with another man. She was expected to keep herself purely and solely for the pleasure of her enslaver. So she was stuck there, in limbo, all the while other members of her family exploited the uniquely elevated status the Hemmings family had at Monticello to improve their lot in life. Indeed, it has been suggested that Sally's success in negotiating with Jefferson over their children's freedom inspired her family to obtain similar concessions from him. Some of them married elsewhere, others gained or bought their freedom, but most would still be sold or sent to other households as favours or for payment of debts. Families split apart at the whims of slave capitalism. In October 1794... Sally gave birth to her second child with Jefferson, a daughter named Harriet. Now the name is interesting, as it's not found in the family trees of the Hemmings family or the Waleses. This sets her apart from her siblings, who tend to choose names of family significance for their children. However, it was a name close to Jefferson. Harriet Randolph was one of his favourites in that family, and she had spent quite a bit of her childhood at Monticello this is hardly conclusive evidence of, well, anything. It's just a name. But names are important. They can convey meaning. What it does suggest is that not only was Jefferson tacitly confirming his paternity, but he was also taking a personal interest in his illegitimate child with his enslaved mistress. Now, again, we know frustratingly little about Sally as a mother but she would have been surrounded by a large and strong nuclear family that would have been an invaluable source of help and advice. Their duties, while extensive, were not quite as onerous as the other enslaved people on the estate, particularly her mother, who had been permitted a sort of semi-retirement in her own small, well, I was going to call it a cottage, but that is giving the tiny dwelling a degree of cosy cuteness it does not really deserve. In 1796, Jefferson allowed himself to be nominated to succeed George Washington as the President of the United States. Now, this is not a political history podcast, so I will skip to the end. He lost, beaten by his former colleague and political foe John Adams into second place. Due to the unique way America was run at the time, coming second in the election meant that he became Vice President, meaning that, once again, he was to leave Monticello. This time, though, he would not make his home in Philadelphia, splitting his time far more equitably between there and Virginia. He was, however, away when he received sad news from his daughter Martha that, poor little Harriet died a few days after you left us. Jefferson's reply conveyed no emotion at the death of his daughter, merely thanking Martha for the news. He did, though, mark the birth of their next child, albeit somewhat obliquely about four months later, in a letter to a friend. Quote, Maria's maid produced a daughter about a fortnight ago and is doing well. This is a very rare mention of Sally in one of Jefferson's letters. And given it's highly probable the friend knew of their relationship, it's possible, just possible, that there is a tint of paternal pride in there. Sadly though, that child too died young, and she wasn't alone. A wave of disease swept through Monticello, carrying off many enslaved workers. Mary had recently married and become pregnant, returning to Monticello to give birth. That baby also died, and Mary suffered a nasty infection she barely survived. In 1800, Jefferson once again ran for the presidency. But his secret back home in Virginia was beginning to get out. James Callender was a newspaperman and pamphleteer with a sketchy past. Born in Scotland, he had fled his native land after libeling Samuel Johnson and attacking King George III in print. In America, he had exposed Alexander Hamilton's affair with a married woman, and Jefferson appears to have used him to get dirt on his opponents. His gutter journalism, though, eventually got him thrown in jail for, quote, publishing false, scandalous and malicious writings. Now, of course, Jefferson was more than happy for his opponent's dirty laundry to be aired in public, but took great care to ensure that his own remained private. But if you hang around with mucky pigs, eventually you're going to get dirty. When Callender got out of jail, he wrote to Jefferson asking for money and a job. Seeing that his former ally appeared even more unhinged than usual, and perhaps regretting their past association, Jefferson refused. Callender stewed and plotted his revenge. The election of 1800 was another closely run affair. Jefferson was running against sitting president John Adams and former New York senator Aaron Burr. He won the popular vote by an overwhelming margin, but, and stop me when you've heard this before, the Electoral College told a different tale. He and Burr were tied meaning the election went down to a vote in the House of Representatives, a vote that Jefferson won, making him, on the 4th of March, 1801, the third President of the United States. Now, this was quite the elevation in status for Jefferson, but for Sally, it probably didn't make much of a difference. So far, we've seen that the mistresses of rulers could often gain quite a bit of power and influence, but that was because they were usually with their lover, in the heart of political life and the heat of political battle. Sally was different. She was at home in Virginia, well, Jefferson's home, far away from the rough and tumble of political battle in the new national capital of Washington, D.C. She was also heavily pregnant, and two months after she became a presidential mistress, she gave birth to a daughter. She was called Harriet in honour of her late sister. While all this was happening, James Callender had been using his tabloid skills to unearth dirt on the new president, and threatened Jefferson with exposing his relationship with Hemmings if he did not make him postmaster of Virginia. Jefferson tried to buy him off, but when that failed, he refused to give in to blackmail. Therefore, in 1802, Callender went public with the diatribe I read at the start of the last episode – Accusing the president of keeping Sally as his concubine and fathering her children. Sally was suddenly a press sensation. Papers friendly to Jefferson denounced Callender as a liar. An editorial in the Richmond Examiner, for example, claimed that Jefferson was not the father of Heming's children. Quote, Is it strange, therefore, that a servant of Mr. Jefferson's at a house where so many strangers resort? who is daily engaged in the ordinary vocations of the family, like thousands of others, should have a mulatto child? Certainly not. I don't think you need me to detect the strong whiff of racism and sexism at play there. No one cared about Sally in all of this. It was all about Jefferson and his reputation. And if you weren't aware, mulatto is a word commonly used around this time to denote a person of mixed race. Sensing his attacks weren't really piercing Jefferson's armour, Callender became even more vitriolic, writing, quote, Jefferson, before the eyes of his two daughters, sent to his kitchen, or perhaps his pigsty, for this mahogany-coloured charmer, before claiming to have a dozen witnesses, quote, as the black wench and her mulatto litter. His so-called journalism was the most vicious and scurrilous about this, but he wasn't alone. Jefferson had a lot of enemies, and they were more than willing to use this story to smear him. His allies scrambled to defend him, but the president never spoke in his own defence. Perhaps this was not to dignify such remarks with any comment. Perhaps it's because he knew them to be true. His daughters, who of course knew the truth of his relationship with Sally, were used as political shields. Jefferson immediately brought them to Washington and acted like they were one big happy family. Sally, naturally, was left in Virginia. It's not known what Sally knew about what was going on in the papers and the gossip that was sweeping the nation, but it's inconceivable she was in the dark. She would have known, which couldn't have been pleasant for her. Now, ultimately, what did she care about what polite white society thought and said about her and her enslaver? It had, ultimately, very little bearing on her life. But all the same, the vicious and vile things that Callender and others wrote about her must have stung. And of course, no one was defending her. No one was on her side. She was collateral damage. All she could do was keep her head down and wait for the storm to blow over. At this time, Jefferson's allies would likely have advised him to send Sally away, to sell her to another plantation, and try and hush the whole thing up. His ally, James Monroe, had bought one of Sally's sisters a few years before. He could easily have taken Sally off his hands. Politically, it was unquestionably the right thing to do. But Jefferson didn't do it. For all his many faults, he does seem to truly have cared for Sally, even loved her, and could not bear to see her leave. So, he refused to send her away and damn the political consequences. In the spring of 1804, Sally would have been at Jefferson's daughter's Mary's side when she gave birth and once again suffered complications. This time, sadly, she would not pull through. There's had been a long association, and though history does not record how Sally reacted to the death of the woman whom she had served as a maid for so many years – not to mention the fact she was her niece, it must have hit her hard. Jefferson was inconsolable. He had suffered a tremendous amount of loss in his life, both in his official family and unofficial one with Sally. Amidst all of this grief, he clearly found comfort with Sally, as less than a year later, Sally gave birth to a son, whom she named Madison. According to Madison Hemmings himself, he was named after Jefferson's ally, James Madison, not at his urging, but apparently his wife. Dolly Madison apparently promised Sally a present if she called her son Madison. Isn't that nice? Well, no. Apparently, Dolly stiffed Sally and never gave her the present. Three years later, at the age of 35, she had her eighth and final child, a son called Thomas Eston. Sally's children, like their cousins, grew up somewhat a cast apart from the other enslaved at Monticello. Indeed, they had a privilege even their other extended family did not, for they were destined to be free. Jefferson had repeated his promise to Sally that they would be freed at the age of 21, and they delighted in that fact. Madison Hemmings later recalled, We were free from the dread of having to be slaves all our lives long, and were measurably happy. We were always permitted to be with our mother. Naturally, of course, their children were still enslaved until then, and were therefore put to work at a very young age. They ran around the house doing errands and jobs until they reached the age of 14, where each was sent to learn a trade. The boys were taught carpentry, while Harriet was sent to a cotton factory to learn how to weave. No attention was given to their education, while Martha and Mary's children were given the best schooling money could buy, their cousins were given no such advantages. Madison Hemings recalled that he, quote, learned to read by inducing the white children to teach me the letters and something more. What else I know of books, I have picked up here and there till now I can read and write. In 1809, Jefferson completed his second and final term as president and retired to Monticello, for good this time. The house, once a peaceful and tranquil refuge, was full to bursting with his various grandchildren, not to mention scores of visitors who came to dinner and stay every night. This was a tremendous strain not only on his health, but also his resources. Monticello had never really earned much money, and the cost of keeping up appearances as a former president and hero of the revolution piled ever more debt on its ledger. This financial difficulty was exacerbated by a market crash in 1819 that brought him to the edge of ruin. He was forced to sell both land and his enslaved to service his debts, meaning that yet more families were split apart due to Jefferson's capriciousness. He would not, however, sell his children. He would keep his promise to Sally, though he would do so in a rather lazy manner. Rather than going through the rigmarole of freeing them, which may have raised some eyebrows, he instead merely let them go. His ledgers record that they, quote, ran away. But given he made no attempt to retrieve them, this was merely for show. The two oldest children moved to Washington and married into white families who apparently had no idea they were formerly enslaved, still less of a clue that they were offspring of the former president. In 1826, With his creditors circling and his family ever growing with new grandchildren and great grandchildren on the way, Jefferson's health began to deteriorate further. Knowing the end was nigh, he made his final arrangements. He was well aware that he was leaving his daughter, he was well aware that he was leaving his heir, Martha, a somewhat poisoned chalice, a legacy of financial mismanagement that would take all of her skill and fortitude to endure. In his will, he officially named Martha as his heir and bestowed freedom on five of the Hemmings family. Among them were his sons, Madison and Thomas Aston, who were to serve as apprentices until they were 21 and then be freed. Sally, however, was not among them. She was not freed. That decision was left in the hands of Martha Jefferson Randolph. There is no official account of Jefferson's death, We know that Martha could not bear to be in the same room when he breathed his last. We do know, as well, that the only people in the room in his final moments were enslaved servants. Probably, one of them was Sally, saying her last goodbye. Jefferson had lived in luxury, but left his family in penury, all the while keeping generations of family in bondage to support his lifestyle. His daughter and her family would have to sell a great deal of their physical possessions, land, and of course, enslaved people to pay off the mountain of debt Thomas Jefferson had left. Eventually, even Monticello was sold. We have little to go on in tracing Sally's final years. There is no written record of her freedom, but it's very likely that, like her eldest surviving children, she was allowed to go free what use would Martha have in her 53-year-old aunt anyway? She went to live in nearby Charlottesville near her sisters to live with her sons who would care for her in her final years. She would eventually die quietly and with none of Jefferson's fanfare in 1835, though one imagines leaving far less of a burden on her children than Jefferson had. We don't know where she was buried. As I said in the introduction to this episode, the truth of Jefferson's relationship with Sally was denied and dismissed by historians till only a few decades ago. Even today, it is a matter of some contention, and many refuse to countenance the idea that Thomas Jefferson would denigrate himself to making an enslaved woman his mistress. Sally's story has been one of the hardest I've had to tell in my years of podcasting trying to immerse myself in the world of the Virginia Plantation. To use the right language, apply the right amount of rigour, and give everyone the correct degree of agency has been a real challenge. Ultimately, I found it impossible to really discover what Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson's relationship was really like. Theirs was a relationship of incredible complexity, with the poison chalice of slavery at its core. Sally lived almost her entire life enslaved. It could well be argued that others had it far worse than she. But she was still forced into a life of bondage from birth, with no choice about where she went, what she did, or who she could be with. She was forced into a sexual relationship with her enslaver, and whatever feelings she may have had towards him, that is a fact that can never be forgotten. But then again, she did have a choice at one point. She could have walked away from it all, and left with her freedom. And yet, she returned to America to be re-enslaved and remain with her enslaver. That says something. What it says, I'll let you judge.